right, let's pray once again. Oh, Lord, how many ways do you woo us to yourself? Lord, sometimes through sweet songs, sometimes through the realization of the incredible blessings and grace you've given us to us every day of our lives, sometimes through really hard and difficult, even tragic things in life. But thank you that you are good, as we read in the psalm earlier. You are good in all your ways. You are kind in all your deeds, and your love is everlasting. God, help us to see that even in your word, every word of it, but particularly this passage we're going to look at today in Mark's gospel. And I pray, Father, that this time of of wooing, this time of calling, this time of commanding would be taken to heart, would be taken seriously, as seriously as life and death, because that's what this is. Lord Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Thank you for graciously giving us breath that we are able to be here, that we're able to hear and listen and even take heed to all that you have to say to us today. I praise you, God, for each soul that you've brought to our service and to this time and to everyone who's joining us on the live stream. I pray, God, that once again, Christ would be the one who's glorified and you would be pleased with both the preaching and the the listening of your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark 11. And there's uh, an expression from yesteryear which used to be well-known, but nowadays, I'm afraid, not so much. And it goes like this. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Some of our more seasoned folks know that one. But the idea of that expression was to build character into people. It's an encouragement to take action and tackle problems when life gets difficult instead of giving up or giving in. Charles Barkley, who's a retired basketball player of what used to be my favorite team, the Philadelphia 76ers, but he retired, and he's, he's now a popular basketball commentator. And he's known for his irreverent wit and outrageous takes on things. I remember long ago he once said, I never forgot this, he said in an interview, when the going gets tough, the tough get going to the fridge for a rum and coke. And obviously, that's actually the opposite of what the tough actually do. Hey, but my question is, where, where do we go when the going gets tough? When life gets hard? When trials come? Where do we go when we're tempted to doubt or become fearful or anxious about the future or even about the present? Where do we go? Well, look at Mark chapter 11. 
And this is just setting the scene here for a moment. Mark 11, verse 1 says, As they approached Jerusalem, and just pause there for a moment because it's been a journey. They're entering Jerusalem, Jesus and the disciples. And this is a, a general transition statement. It marks the end of the narrative of all the first chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Okay, we've been going through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. For, for them, it's been two years. For us, it's been a, little, uh, a year and, and a few months. Okay, but this is a, a transition time. This is the, the beginning of the final phase of Christ's three-year ministry. Right? So listen, the next five chapters of Mark, okay, chapters 11 through 15, it covers, it covers like one week, okay, less than a week. This is the five chapters. It's the Passion Week, in, 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 in fact. Jesus' teachings, his confrontations with the religious leaders, the mock trials, and his crucifixion. Okay, Mark spends five full chapters on just this one week. Hey, we've been in Mark, the first 10 chapters, it was, it was two years of Jesus' life. And so, in other words, this is a, a pretty intense time for the disciples and for those who are following Jesus to this point. Hey, I want you to keep in mind that attempts on Jesus' life have, in a, in a way, already been made for a number of times. You remember John chapter 8, verse 58, when Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am, Right? And what did the, the, the crowd get all worked up? And they, they, they were trying to kill him. And then in John chapter 10, verse 30, when he says, I and the Father are one, the Jews, they picked up stones to kill him on the spot. But it wasn't his time yet, but it is now. And this really comes to a head in the next chapter of John, John chapter 11, right? When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and then the Pharisees and scribes, their plots to kill him really start to come to fruition, and it's uh, leading us to this point. So um, remember this. They weren't trying to kill him because he was doing something wrong or because he was speaking false things. Okay? It's because he was speaking the truth of the gospel and the truth of who he actually is and for performing deeds of supernatural power and grace and love that they just couldn't, they couldn't handle it. When he raised Lazarus up from the dead, they're like, that's it. Everyone's following him we got to do something now. And so the whole like, past two years has been a, a leading up to that. So the religious leaders, they are ready to do away with Jesus immediately, it says in John 11. And so I explain all that just to say that there's tension in the air. Okay, there's, a, there's a certain danger coming. Jesus is headed to the cross, and it's not an easy time to be one of his followers. Where will his disciples go as Passion Week unfolds and the going gets really tough? Where will the crowds go, okay, the ones who have been following him, receiving his ministry, witnessing his miracles? Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. They're following him to this point. Though many have also left him, will they continue to follow? That's the question. And so this is the road to Jerusalem and Mark 11 verse 1 continues by saying they approached as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. So last Sunday we saw that his last leg of that journey was through the city of Jericho and it was about a, a day or so but 
You know what? Between then and now in Mark chapter 11, probably uh, just a span of time has, has passed, a couple months maybe. Okay? We don't know exactly what the, the time frame was. There are other things that happened in between. But now this is where we are. He's going with his disciples into the town of Bethany, the Mount of Olives, and um, this, this town was just a few miles away from Jerusalem. And so Jesus knows his hour had come. Okay? It's here. And he already told the 12 disciples a number of times we've been through that. They still didn't get it. They didn't understand. And so the significance of Palm Sunday, right? Many Bibles, uh, if your Bible is like mine, have a title, have a heading there. And it says the triumphal entry, right? And the, the parallel passages are in Matthew 21 and Luke 18, Luke 19 and John chapter 12. Okay? It's in all four Gospels. Okay, so this, this event is, is quite significant. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. We know the story. He's riding on a donkey, receiving the praise and adulation of the crowds of people. It's a very critical day in his life and ministry. Once again, it marks the beginning of the final week of his earthly life. So we know what the majority of his so-called followers did, right? Many of the same people who were shouting his praise would be screaming for his blood Five days later, even his 12 disciples scatter when reality hits and the heat is turned up. No one wanted to be associated with this man when the going got tough. So here's the sermon theme for today, okay, of this well-known passage, which is in all four Gospels. Okay, in Mark's chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, the first Palm Sunday, as it's known, okay, the first Palm Sunday shows us who Jesus is. Okay, and why is that? So that we will worship and follow him as true disciples. Okay, it's very straightforward. Okay, this first Palm Sunday shows us who Jesus is. God shows us who Jesus is in order that we would worship and follow him as true disciples. What's the opposite of a true disciple? Okay, a fake, a fraud. Okay, rather than forsake him as a fake disciple, okay, God would have us follow him as a true disciple. The title is, All Hail the Messiah King Jesus. And I'm going to read the text now. It's Mark 11, verses 1 through 10. If you are able to do so, please stand with me. This is Mark 11, verses 1 through 10. As they approached Jerusalem... At Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Please be seated. So I want us to glean from today's passage, dear people, three reasons why you should follow and keep following Jesus through all of life's triumphs and trials. Three reasons why you and I should follow and keep following Jesus even through all of life's triumphs and trials. And the first one is in the first half of the passage, verses 1 through 6. It's because he is the sovereign Lord. Because Jesus is the sovereign Lord. I won't read the passage again, but verses 1 through 6, we saw there that Jesus knows all the details, big and small. How amazing it is for us to pause and consider that. He knew everything about the donkey, the colt, where it is, which village, when it will happen. Immediately, he says, right? Whose it is, which one he wanted. He knew the day, the time. He knew the Passover. He knew the crowds. He knew his enemies. Okay, King Jesus is in charge of the entire situation. Not, as some commentators propose, that he made some previous arrangement with the townsfolk because he got there a little bit early, right, ahead of uh, his disciples and everyone. And he told them and he arranged it and then he went back and it was a few days later and then he told, oh, this is what's going to happen. It didn't happen that way. There's no clue at all in any of the text. Just like the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that? I told you some liberal commentators were saying that somehow Jesus uh, met with a bunch of people in that countryside area and uh, said, you know what, we're going to have a large crowd here at some point, so just be ready. Right? And then they get there, and then you know, all of a sudden there's all this food for 5,000 people. Um, that, is, that is just uh, unbiblical and um, not, not true. So when we say the sovereign Lord, we're speaking of Jesus' deity, deity, his godhood. Okay? That he is the Son of God and God the Son. He is who he claimed to be. This text shows us Jesus' omniscient knowledge of the future and his sovereign orchestration of all of the events. His hour had come. He knew it. He's going to make it happen. And he's taking care of all the details. Look at verse 2. Down to when he says, you will find a colt tied there. Okay, a colt. This is a, a foal of a donkey. And usually a, a young colt like this would not have been used as, as long as it was running with its mom. Right? It's mother, the mare. In the Old Testament, animals that had not yet been used were regarded as set apart for some sacred purpose. And we won't go to the verses right now, but Numbers 19, verse 2, Deuteronomy 21, verse 3, 1 Samuel 6, verse 7 give you examples of that. But to quote R.C. Sproul, he says, Donkeys, just like horses, usually had to be broken in to become functional beasts of burden. Yet the principle in the Jewish culture was that no one was allowed to ride on the king's horse or the king's donkey. Only the king could ride his beasts. This is why Jesus specifically asked for a colt that had never been ridden. It was the colt prepared for the king, end quote. And I just love this in verse 3 when uh, Jesus says, If anyone says to you, disciples, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord 
has need of it. Just tell them the Lord has need of it, right? When you think about that, what an amazing statement he makes. I mean, how incredible is it that the creator and sustainer of all things would, would be in need of something? A uh, pastor named Alan Carr, he um, just uh, makes a good comment here. He says, quote, Jesus, he owned all things, yet he possessed nothing. Okay, when you consider who Jesus is and, and the life that he lived that we've been learning about through the last, you know, our, our time in Mark, he created the stars, yet he had nowhere to lay his own head. He fashioned everything that exists out of nothing, yet he had to borrow a boat from which to preach his gospel. He created every tree, but he died on a borrowed cross. He created every rock, but he had to borrow a tomb in which to be buried. He used the clouds as his chariots, Psalm 104.3, yet he had to borrow a donkey on which to ride. He was rich, yet made himself poor, so that those who believe on him might enjoy his riches, end quote. What a beautiful, wonderful Savior we have. So by way of implication and application here, I ask once again, why should we follow Jesus? Why should we keep following Jesus? Well, it's because he's the sovereign Lord. His omniscience, his wisdom, his absolute control extends to every detail of our lives, just like he was controlling every detail in his so-called triumphal entry. He knows us as our Father in heaven does, even to the extent of every hair on our head being numbered, Matthew 10, verse 30 and 31. So why should we worry? Why should we fear? What do we need to be anxious about and fret over in the present time or in the future? Let's remember that our Savior is the sovereign Lord of all. Okay? Um, another pastor named Brian Bill, he, he, he says about this Palm Sunday scene, quote, Jesus was purposely going public. He was promoting a public demonstration. Okay? Never before. He had repeatedly before withdrawn from the crowds, but now he invited it. He courted danger and did it with calculated purpose. Jesus was demonstrating his omniscience and his all-knowingness. He was in control, again, of the whole situation, end quote. Isn't it wonderful and comforting to know that? Hey, especially when the going gets tough. Hey, the, the Lord has every single detail of our lives figured out. He has it planned for our greatest good. And listen to me, even, even when it doesn't feel that way, he has your greatest good in his mind, in his heart, even when it doesn't seem like it to you. And we can ask Job about that when we get to heaven, right? And all this is for his own glory. You remember Psalm 23, verse 3, right? He guides us in the paths of righteousness. Okay, he's the one guiding us. If you're going through a, a rough patch right now, if you're going through a difficult time, if you're going through a, just a, a horrific time, perhaps, like I said last week, right? Every heart is a hurting heart. Every home is a hurting home. Okay? He is guiding you in the paths of righteousness. You know what for? For his name's sake. That means for, for his glory's sake. To, to magnify 
the, the excellent character of his name. Let's remember that. Let's remember that today. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. He knows, he cares, and we should take great, great comfort in that. I want to encourage you. So the second reason in our text today why we should follow Jesus and keep following him to the end, through all of life's trials, all of its triumphs, verses 7 through 10, it's because he is the promised Messiah. Because he is the promised Messiah. Verses 7 through 10. And uh, I'll just uh, read it again. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it. He sat on it. Many spread their coats in the road. Others spread leafy branches they cut from the fields. Those who went in front, those who followed, were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And, um, you know, Mark doesn't mention this, but Matthew does. If you want to turn there for a moment, Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5. Like I said, this is the parallel passage, Matthew describing the same event. Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5. Matthew writes, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And that is a a reference to Zechariah 9, verse 9. And uh, you can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. Zechariah 9, verse 9, I'm going to read it to you. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, righteous, and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's Zechariah 9, verse 9, which is the main prophecy that's being fulfilled here in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, John chapter 12. This event of his riding into the big city of Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Isaiah 62, verse 11 is another one that you can jot down. And Zechariah was written, note this, 500 years before it actually happened. And Zechariah is full of messianic prophecies, some of you may know. But 9, verse 9 in Zechariah describes the Messiah as Israel's king, Zion, right? That's a euphemism for Israel. And he's the ruler, the sovereign, the deliverer. He also describes him as just, which means righteous, equitable, fair. And it says in verse 9 of Zechariah once again that he, he brings salvation. He's the one who's going to bring deliverance. And it's not just an earthly deliverance. And he's also described as humble. So let us know and understand that this prophecy refers to the Messiah in his humiliation. Hey, when Zechariah describes him as humble, it's not only referring to his character, which the Messiah is, Jesus is, right? We went over that last week. But also someone who will be afflicted and oppressed by evil men. This is what we mean when we say humiliation. Somehow, this promised Messiah king 
comes as a man of sorrows, a one who is well acquainted with grief and suffering. So he comes in lowliness, in humiliation. And so the donkey is fitting, right? Normally the donkey is considered a, a lowly animal that only people of rank, no rank or position would ride. Especially after Solomon's time, kings and warriors and people of high rank rode on horses, and the donkey was a, a beast of burden. And when you take that phrase apart, this is a, a burden bearer, right? It's one who brings peace, not, not war. So Jesus rides in on this donkey, the foal, the colt, which no one has ridden before, and so... He chooses it for his lowly entrance. I like to call it his humble coronation. And it fulfills that prophecy. It shows him to be the Messiah. People recognize this to some degree. We're going to see it in their response. But they're hailing Jesus with praise and titles that's only fit for the Messiah. So guys, what's the point? Right? This didn't happen by accident. It wasn't random. Hey, who else could have fulfilled this 500-year-old prophecy that was, that was uttered way back when to such exact detail. It's yet another of the 200 Messianic prophecies. Some scholars say it was over 400 okay, that Jesus fulfilled from the Old Testament. So if anyone's doubting that Jesus is the, the promised one, um, you, you need to, to trust the word. You need to look into the word and trust it. Okay, so going back to verse 9 here for a moment uh, of Mark chapter 11. Verse 9 and 10, again it says, They went in front, those who were followed shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And I'll just mention Malachi 3 verses 1 and 2. It says that the Messiah is coming. And this was the prophecy that includes John the Baptist, someone who would come as a, um, someone who's, who's making the way for the Messiah to come. But he's coming. Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, which we read in our scripture reading purposefully today. Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. This is what is being quoted here in Mark 11 and in the other Gospels. It's one of the Hallel Psalms, which means praise. Hallelujah, right? They sang at all the Jewish festivals, especially at Passover. This is a Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118. They were shouting Hosanna, which means what? It's a, it's a beseeching of God to save now. Salvation now. Lord, save. Salvation come, we pray. And who is it to? It's to the son of David. And this is what Bartimaeus was calling Jesus, right? Repeatedly, multiple times. Son of David, have mercy on me. It's a messianic title. Clearly, they were calling out to Jesus calling him the fulfillment of this prophecy, all those prophecies. So what should we note from this, dear people? Hey, listen, Jesus accepted the praise. He accepted the worship. He accepted the adoration. Hey, those coats that were putting on the donkeys and spreading their coats in the road, right? This was uh, an act of respect and honor and homage. It's treatment fit for a king. The coronated kings rode in the city on horses or chariots. They were elevated above the peoples. And so when they would spread their coats out in front of them, they were, they were submitting themselves to this king who was riding in. 
It's kind of a red carpet moment, if you will. And others were spreading leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. That symbolized the people's hope and their joy, even, that the Messiah King had come. And he was going to deliver them from oppression and give them hope for victory. And I read it a few times now, but verse 9, there were a lot of people here. It was like a, a mob scene. All, all three of the Gospels say people in front and people following. They were everywhere, like this throngs of people, people on top of people, front and back, multitudes. Matthew says all the city was stirred. The whole city of Jerusalem was stirred. The famous Jewish historian Josephus, he recorded that during Passover, there were 250,000 lambs that were slaughtered. Okay, one per ten people, like one per family or so which, when you do the math, an estimated 2.5 million people crowded together in the city during Passover time. Okay? So my point is that lots and lots and lots of people at this moment. And so if you want to turn to uh, Luke's passage for a moment, Luke chapter 19 Luke 19, verses 37 to 40. So look at how Jesus accepts all this praise and and worship and adoration. Verse 37, Luke 19. Well, 36 says, As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road, like I said. Verse 37, As soon as he was approaching, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice, For all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Okay. In other words, he's saying, no, this is is not the time for me to rebuke them and have them be silent. And even if I do, the stones, creation itself, will shout out my praise. But my point is that he's, he's accepting the crowd's worship, okay? respect, honor, glory, which should only go towards one who is actually the Messiah. Okay? So um, what does this tell us? Once again, it tells us that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Right? He's not rejecting worship. If he's just a man, if he's a human political Messiah or, or deliverer, he should not accept worship like this, okay? And the titles that they're giving him and the praise and all the things that's going on here. But he does. And so this gives us another clue as the identity of the Messiah, who's Jesus. So before we leave this point, um, let's, let's understand that God fulfills his word, right? All those, Zechariah, Malachi, Psalm 118, all these prophecies that were given hundreds, centuries before. God is true to his word. He keeps his promises. Jesus fulfilled them. And and so this is another reason for us to to follow and keep following Jesus. God is a God who, who does not lie. He cannot lie. He always tells the truth. He's always faithful. He's faithful and true, which means he will always keep his promises he doesn't break his pledges. What he says will stand for forever. And so that's why we believe 
that Jesus is coming back. He came the first time, and the Bible tells us he's going to come again, and this time not riding in on a donkey, but next time riding in on a horse, not coming to bring salvation, but coming to bring judgment. And if we don't know the Lord yet, even some of us here this morning, we need to take that as a a warning, admonition, and exhortation to come face-to-face with the living Savior and submit your life to him. I'll call you again to repent of your sins. Turn away and forsake your, your, your own ambition and desires and your own earthly life and the things that, that, that you want in your, in your flesh. Turn from all of that and live the way Jesus says to live. Believe in Jesus Christ. Submit your life to his lordship. Beg him for salvation and forgiveness. And the Bible says that you will, you will receive salvation if you call on the name of the Lord in that way. And praise God that Jesus is alive. And he came the first time, and he will come again. But he can't come again if he's dead. But since the Bible is true, and Jesus did resurrect from the grave, he will come again. So God fulfills his word, folks. He's faithful, so we should and must follow him. So the third and final reason that we should follow Jesus through all of life's triumphs and trials is because he is the only Savior of the world. He's the only Savior of the world. And verse 9, that word again, Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. A Lord save. Salvation now. Salvation we pray. And who else to call out? Something like that too, but but to the only one who can save. This is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Why should you believe in him? Why should you worship him? Why should you follow him? Well, it's because your eternal destiny depends on it. And that's the bottom line for everyone, and especially for those who are, again, not saved yet this morning. Can I tell you and show you just a little bit of the the character of this Savior, this Messiah, this King? I want to point out just two um, aspects of, of him. And the first thing is is his compassion. Again, going back to Luke chapter 19, if you want to turn there with me just for a brief moment here. Luke 19, verse 41. This is right after the the verses I read from Luke 19 before. And it says in verse 41 of Luke 19, and this is the, the... the same scene here. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Okay? And it was not just a, a, a few tears kind of you know, coming down his face. This is, this is like a, a sobbing, okay? uh, a heaving, wrenching, tears streaming down his face, weeping. And he's saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side 
and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So this shows us the, the compassion of our Lord. Okay? Compassion for the lost. It's clear there, Jesus' care and his concern and his sadness and his sorrow and his grieving and his weeping and his mourning over these, these people who, who seemingly are for him. Okay, on the surface, when you read Mark 11 and you read the passage that we looked, it looks like this, this, uh, this wonderful scene, right? This happy, joyous occasion. Jesus is getting what he should and everyone's good and happy and it's uh, just a, a wonderful coronation and God is being glorified and they're praising him. And yet, there's something further behind the scenes and we'll get to it next, the next few weeks and as Jesus is, is um, he has a lot to teach uh, in this coming week. But, he has compassion. He's the weeping Savior. And it's not the first time that he, he wept over the people. It's not the first time he wept over their spiritual darkness and their lostness. And he has a compassion for the lost. So I, I just want you to know what a compassionate, loving, sympathetic Savior that we hold out to you. And he wants you to come to him as we sang. But also, within that same exact statement, same exact verses in Luke 19, we saw his condemnation for those who reject him. Okay, the city, it's actually going to be judged, right? The destruction of the temple is going to happen like 40 years later, okay? even less than 40 years. And the destruction, he's, he's prophesying that. And it does happen. And so, Jesus is compassionate, yet... He's the righteous judge. And Jesus is the righteous, fair, equitable, just judge. And um, we saw that in Psalm 118 as well, right? God's, God's sending of the Messiah, and yet his righteous judgment on those who are, who are causing the righteous harm, right? And so we need to um, take note of Jesus' character. He has, he does, he does possess the position and right to condemn those who reject God, reject him, himself, reject the gospel. And yet his compassion and care would have him call sinners to repentance. It's both and. So look at, um, let's turn to John chapter 12 for a moment before we get to our concluding thoughts. John chapter 12, and this kind of punctuates the point I was just making. John chapter 12, look at what our Savior says in verse 27. Okay, John chapter 12, again, is the place in, in John's gospel where the triumphal entry is described. But verse 27 he says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And so the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, 
This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Okay, looking ahead to the cross, right? But look, verse 33. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. So again, the urgency for those of us who are walking in the darkness, those of you who are walking in the darkness, to come to the light. But what does he say there in verse 44? Can you drop down just a bit? Listen. He cries out and says, verse 44, John 12, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. So listen, he does, he's not saying he who believes in me does not believe in, in He's not believe in me only, but also in, in the Father, in him who sent me, right? Verse 45, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. So it's like he told Philip before, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Verse 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But he who rejects me and does not perceive my, receive my sayings has one who judges him. Yet the word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Verse 50, finally, I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So once again, you see that, that just juxtaposition there? He keeps calling people to repentance, calling them to come to him. He's saying, I am who I am. And he says, the Father, the words I spoke and the Father will judge. He is the judge. And so there's, there's judgment awaiting for those who do not know him as personal Savior and Lord. So as we conclude here, what does this first Palm Sunday show us? Okay, it shows us that Jesus is control. He's in control of every situation. He's following perfectly, as we just read in John 12, perfectly in the will of his Father. He knows what will happen. He knows that this is all going to lead him to being crucified, bearing the cup of his Father's wrath as he hangs on a cross in five short days. Jesus is the mighty Savior. He's the only Savior of the world. He's the sovereign one who holds all things in his hands. And this includes the salvation of sinners. I'm going to end with this quote from Paul Tripp. He says, Your job will fail you. People will fail you. Success will fail you. You will fail you. But Jesus, he will never ever fail you, end quote. And so he's worthy of our belief. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our following him all the way to the end, following him as true disciples and not as those who would forsake him as frauds 
Hey, we should follow Christ. He's the sovereign Lord, the promised Messiah, the only hope, the only Savior of the world. I pray that we would come to him together. Let's pray. God, this is a well-known passage, and sometimes it seems like we are repeating things, but I pray, God, that you would use your word and the delivery of your word and the, the reception of your word to fall upon ears and hearts that are open and humbled and thankful. God, thankful that Jesus is who he said he is and this entry into Jerusalem on that fateful day, five days before he would go to the cross. God, that we would just see it with eyes anew and the truths that we see of Jesus' identity once again, his worth, his honor, his glory, we would see it all and take it all in and just, Lord, we want to we be faithful to follow him through everything in life that you have ordained for us. I pray for anyone here who is, is hurting God, who is going through a difficulty, especially those who are just uh, really um, going through hard trials right now, that, that uh, this word has been a, a blessing to them. And, Lord, that it would uh, bless all of us as we um, are, are faced with things, God, in the, in the coming days, and our eyes would be fixed once again on our Savior. Thank you so much, God, for this time and for the, the promise that your word will accomplish what it has been set forth to do, and that is to, to bring good to your people and to glorify yourself. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.